to Ephesians chapter 2. Indeed, money cannot buy what this missionary, among many, is experiencing as he sees the saving grace come to bear on a broken and, and fallen culture. And we get to participate in that. If you're a Christian, you're, you're either a, a goer or a sender. And one of the ways we send, besides prayer, and our prayer group every Monday afternoon prays for these missionaries, it's to give sacrificially so that these missionaries can be resourced, that the nations might be glad in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you would, look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 14. Apostle Paul writes these words, For he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Christ, we both, that is Jew and Gentile believers, have access in one spirit to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning through your Son and by your Spirit through whom we have access to you. It's remarkable that we have access to you. And we pray, Lord, as we hear this word preached today, that we will appreciate this access even more than we did as before we came. We pray that we would honor you with a stewardship of this task of hearing the word of God preached today. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. On a blizzard-like Christmas Eve, 76 years ago tonight, at the height of the bloody the violent, the horrific Battle of the Bulge. A German woman named Elizabeth Winken and her 12-year-old son Fritz, they were in their country cottage because her husband had sent them there to get away from the violence. They heard a knock on the door. And when she went to the door, there were three U.S. soldiers there. One had been shot and was close to dying. They were cold. They were hungry. They were afraid. Well, she welcomed them into her home. And she fed them. As she was cooking for them, though, she heard another knock. She went to the door, and lo and behold, it was four German soldiers. Well, she just knew she had to explain. She said, listen, I have three U.S. soldiers in my home, and you're welcome 
to come in, but this is Christmas Eve. It's a holy night. There will be no violence. You will leave your guns at the door. And so the four German soldiers came in, and what happened there was remarkable. There was, a, in fact, a German soldier who was a medical student, and he had learned enough in medical school to take the bullet out of the U.S. soldier's body and began the process of healing there for that young man. Well, they sat down at the table to eat together, in, in fact, and Mrs. Vinken prayed. And then they sang in tears, silent light and holy night. It was a remarkable night. And then the next morning, the, the, the soldiers assisted each other, German soldiers, U.S. soldiers, in directions back to their respective battalions. Elizabeth Vinken risked being charged with high treason because she was a German and she had housed and taken care of U.S. soldiers. But Elizabeth Vinken was a Christian. She had been reconciled to God through the blood of her Lord Jesus Christ and had experienced the peace of God. And this impacted everyone around her. Everyone. And such was the impact that in 1995, the show Unsolved Mysteries reenacted that event. In fact, that was a time where that soldier uh, who was healed, Ralph Blank, and her son Fritz were reunited for the first time since that night. In fact, the man, Ralph Branken, who was, who was saved that night, said to her son, your mother saved my life. As well, this story was picked up in a very famous piece called Truce in the Forest. ran in Reader's Digest in January of 1973. In 1985, Ronald Reagan, when he came to Germany, he retold that story. And here's what he said. He said, this story needs to be told and retold because none of us can ever hear too much about building peace and reconciliation with each other. Of course, in one sense, Reagan <clears throat> was correct. Peace is what our hearts are long long for in a world that is alienated, uh, that's under the curse of alienation, in fact. But in another sense, Reagan was wrong. He said that peace and reconciliation is something we build. But that's not true. Peace and reconciliation is some, isn't something that we create. It's something that was purchased for us by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace and the reconciliation we now pursue in time and space is simply the fruit of the new creation ushered in and accomplished by the Son of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we see that at the very beginning of Ephesians 2.14. We see right out of the gate, Christ is our peace. Notice in verse 14. He says, for he himself, he is our peace, who has made 
the two one. He says he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that word for is a connector. And, and so he's continuing the thought that we saw from verse 13 last week. Notice in verse 13 for reminder. By now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. Who are those who were far off? Well, they were the Gentiles. Gentiles were those who were far off because of the ordinances in the law that kept them far off because God was protecting the purity of the people of God. They were to be the light to the nations and they were the custodian of the seed of the woman who would be ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He says, you were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this term peace, he himself is our peace. The peace of Christ is the theme of this text. We see this word four times in verses 14 to 15, or 14 to 18. We see the word in verse 14, we see the word in verse 15, and we see it two times in verse 17. So that tells us this is the theme of this passage, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we sang just a bit about it this morning, but in that very famous prophecy in Isaiah, when Isaiah is speaking of a day when his people, God's people, would be brought out of exile and this Messiah figure would come, a stem from the stump of Jesse, he says, he says in this prophecy in Isaiah 9, a, a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Shalom, if you will. Uh, it was also a prophecy we see in Micah. In that very famous prophecy in Micah 5, where one would come and be born in Bethlehem of Pathra. And he says in that passage, he shall be their peace. And this peace has certain necessary, absolutely necessary consequences in every believer. First of all, we see here that Christ has made both the Jew believer, Jewish believer, and the Gentile believer, one person, made, made them one man, unity. He has made us both one. That's the first consequence. Now, think about this. I, I spoke last week about the different ethnicities and, and all of the, the division among ethnicities today. They're man-made. It's a result of sin. All ethnic hostility today is a result of of sin. For example, in order to justify slavery in America, it was said by many that black people were only three-fifths the image of God. Well, that's thoroughly unbiblical and wicked. And scripture says that we all derive from Adam. Adam is the father of all humanity. And so that was thoroughly unbiblical, but it was a way to justify chattel slavery. Well, um, this week on the Black Lives Matter website, conversely, a woman named Yusra Ali, who is the Black Lives Matter founder in Toronto, said, now this is on their website, I had to see it for myself, to have white skin is to be subhuman. And genetically 
deficient. White people are a genetic defect of blackness. And so as wicked as this idea that black people are three-fifths the image of God, so as wicked is this idea that white people are genetically deficient. Clearly, ethnic divisions like this are sinful and wicked and not of the Lord. And yet, there was a division between Jews and Gentiles that was divinely ordained. Not in the sense that the Jews were called to hate the foreigner. They were called to love the foreigner. But they were separated from the foreigner so that they could remain pure and be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the Gentiles. But then, as the law always does, it exposed the sin in their hearts, the sin that's in every human heart. And this division led to ethnic pride, ethnic vainglory, ethnocentrism, sinful ethnic pride, what is called often today racism, developed among the Jews. So, for instance, William Barclay, he says this about that divide. The Gentiles believed the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of need. Now, again, this was not sanctioned by God. This was the sin that came out of their misapplication of the law. It was unlawful in their perspective to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or a Gentile or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. It was as if that child was now dead to the family. And yet Paul says, even this divide is overcome by Christ our peace. Isn't that remarkable? That's the most severe of divides, and it's been overcome. A second necessary consequence of this peace we see here, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what is the wall? Well, this is a metaphor, though I think Paul is thinking of an illustration that we'll get to in a moment, of the Mosaic Law, which, as I said, divided Jews and Gentiles. For example, the Sabbath and food laws and circumcision, it separated Jews and Gentiles. Again, this was sanctioned by the Lord and the Jews misappropriated it, misapplied it. It separated them because God's design for Israel was to be a light to the nations. You can't be a light if you conform to the nations. It was also God's design for Israel to be the custodian of Messiah. And so it was important that they be separate unto God. But a good illustration for that was the wall in the temple that separated the Jewish worshipers from the Gentile worshipers. There was a court of the Gentiles, and 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that wall was some four and a half feet tall. And it had signs all around it, written in Greek and in Latin. In fact, two of the Greek signs have been found. One was found in, in 1871 and the other in 1935. The one that was found in 1871 is, in fact, in a museum today in Istanbul, Turkey. And here's what it says. No foreigner, that is the Gentiles, may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. But the hostility illustrated by the wall in the temple was destroyed by means of Jesus' death, his blood. And verse 15 gives us more detail how. Notice verse 15. So again, verse 14, he's made us both one, broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. And that hostility is first and foremost an hostility towards our creator. We're not born into a state where we love God. That's not us naturally. Uh, the human race is born in a state of hostility. Paul says in Colossians 1, we were alienated and the enemies in our minds by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled us through the body of his flesh. So this hostility is first vertical, but when you have a vertical hostility towards our creator, it will manifest itself horizontally. And even the best of your human relationships will be highly conditional relationships. He says that hostility has been destroyed. Verse 15, he says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So again, these ordinances were the laws that separated Israel from the pagan nations. But what does he mean the law was abolished? Does he mean that the law is no longer useful? Well, we certainly know that's not the case because he affirms the usefulness of the law in Romans chapter 3, among other places. But the ordinances that separate the Jew and the Gentile are now abolished. He has abolished these ordinances by fulfilling them. He is the fulfillment of the law in that sense. And he abolished this aspect of the law for a couple of reasons. The first reason we see in the second part of verse 15, it's a very tightly woven theological argument. Sometimes it's a challenge to, 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 to teach Paul's uh, epistles because of the, just the, it's dense, yes, glorious, but dense material. Notice in the second part of verse 15, he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and here's why, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, in the place of the Jew, in the place of the Gentile, he might create, that's the verb form for the, ver or the noun that we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So this is new creation language. That he might create 
in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is that a new human race under the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace, he is our peace. And so when Jew-Gentile are united to Christ by grace through faith, a new man is constituted in Jesus Christ in whose image we will now begin to be conformed to. And so, remember, he's already used new creation language. He's in, in Ephesians 2.10, he said, We are God's workmanship created, there's the verb, in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, Jesus' blood, Paul says, brings peace. It's the only thing that will bring, bring peace. There's nothing our government can do to bring peace. Even if reparations became the law of the land... It will not bring peace. The only thing that can bring peace is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a person rejects that, there's nothing else that can be offered. Jesus' blood brings peace, not only, though, by destroying the enmity, but also by creating a new humanity in him. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 6.15, Circumcision or uncircumcision or anything but new creation. But new creation. That's what he's referring to. This is a new creation. Only a new creation, a new humanity united to him can bring peace. But, but this new humanity is, is different from what both were before. Completely different. Both are made one in Jesus Christ. There's a new race... In the new Adam, what Paul is referring to here. It's a new race and a new Adam. It's a new man, Jew and Gentile. John Christensen said, it's though as if a, a statue of silver, which he would have called the Jews, and a statue of, of lead, the Gentiles, were, were forged together, and it comes out as a statue of gold. The second reason Jesus abolished this aspect of the law, seen in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. That verb reconcile is only found one other place. It's found twice, actually, in that place in Colossians 1, where we were enemies in our, uh, in our minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled us, the body of his flesh through death, if indeed we continue in the faith. That, that verb reconciles the only other place that we see this here. But, but what we see here is that this horizontal piece of verse 15, peace between fractured humanity, isn't possible without vertical of peace achieved as we see here. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, or nor any other ethnicity, you can say greater to lesser in that regard, will not be united into a new man if they're not first united in the unifying God. That's how the unity achieved, is achieved. That's why it's vital that a Christian man marry a Christian woman. You will never have a marriage of unity if one is not in Christ. 
And that's how it is in any relationship. True unity is found by being united to the one who has reconciled us to the unifying God. That's what Paul is saying. But by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our peace, this unity occurs. Remarkably, Jesus has united. It's already occurred. Now, it's important for us to hear in this day of pursuing racial reconciliation. Jesus has already united the two most deeply separated categories of humanity in the history of the world into one new man, Jews and Gentiles. All other divisions pale in comparison to that. And, and, and this is part of God's plan to unite all things in Christ. Remember Ephesians 1, 9 and 10? I said, this is the high point of Scripture. The high point of Scripture as revealed to Paul, the mystery revealed to Paul is God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. This is part of the plan. He's making one new race, one new human race in Christ our peace. He is the goal. You know, this past Tuesday, December the 8th, was the 40th anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon, one of the founding members and songwriters and singers for the group, the Beatles. I love the Beatles. I'm sure many here love the Beatles. Maybe you remember the night that he was assassinated. I certainly remember it. I was only 12 years old, but I was watching Monday Night Football. And the irony of this is that it was Howard Cosell, of all people, who announced to the world that John Lennon had been shot. There was, he, Lennon was sent to the ER there in New York, and there was an ABC correspondent in the ER being treated for something. He calls ABC and and at the time, ABC was running Monday Night Football. And so they called the Monday Night Football, uh, you know, booth. And Howard Cosell announced to the world that John Lennon had been shot. Well, just a, a few months after Lennon left the Beatles, he wrote what would be his biggest solo hit. And... He, let me just share with you just a couple of the lines from that song. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Lenin evidently believed that peace would come with the end of all religion. And that's what is a common view today. But there's perhaps an even more common view than that. It's reflected in a book that was written this year by a woman named Tara Isabella Burton. The book is called Strange Rights, published in 2020, New Religions for a Godless World where she estimates, this is hunting, 
that 50% of all Americans, 50%, half of all United States citizens are adopting beliefs and practices that are a mix of traditional religion, whatever that is, and personal spirituality. That is what seems sensible and right to me. And they're mixing them into a hodgepodge of their own construction. And she calls these people the remixed. So be familiar with that term. It's not going to go away. The remixed. She says 50% of the U.S. are remixed. And the remixed believe that if we were just a little more flexible in our religion, there would be more unity. But we, we know anything, we've learned anything from the postmodern era, is the intolerance of the tolerant. There is no peace with that kind of mentality. Only, Paul says, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ can bring true reconciliation. Outside of that, alienation and hostility. Indeed, this is the greatest of benefits. It means we're no longer without hope. It means we're no longer without God in this world. Indeed, Christ is our, pre- our, our peace, and that's why Christ comes and preaches peace. That brings us to the, the second part of this passage, verse 17. He says, and he came, that is Christ, and preached peace to you who were far off, that is the Gentile, and peace to those who were near. Why would he do that? Why would he come and preach peace? Because again, outside of him, there is no peace. Outside of Christ, there is no peace. The gospel message is a proclamation of peace. What is this peace? Well, first and foremost, it's objective peace. It's not even a peace that we feel. It's legal peace. It's peace with God. It's our greatest need. Do you realize the greatest need you have you can't even feel? Legal, the need for a legal standing with God. It's our greatest need. Objective peace has been secured in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would write in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Uh, We're not born at peace with God. There is a two-sided alienation. We are alienated from God because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. But God is alienated from us because of his holy wrath on our sin and our rebellion. Jesus Christ took the wrath. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. And now we can have objective legal peace with God. And now with that legal peace, that objective peace, God begins to work subjective peace by his spirit in our hearts. So peace with God Peace within and peace with our fellow man. Now, Paul is picking up language here from Isaiah 57, 19. We, we know that Jesus came and preached to the Gentiles. We know that Jesus also preached to the Jews. We know that he commissioned his, 
his disciples and, and the apostles to preach to the, to the Gentiles and the Jews. But Paul is picking up language here from Isaiah 57. Now, in Isaiah 57, what's going on there? Again, Isaiah is envisioning a day when the exile will be over. When the alienation that stems from this exile in Babylon, more fundamentally spiritually, will be over. And one will come, a suffering servant. There's four suffering servant songs, 40, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53. Uh, one who is anointed by the Spirit who will come and proclaim the good news, Isaiah 61. A light for the nations, Isaiah 60, who will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. That's the context. And here's what it says in Isaiah 57. This one will come and preach peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. Him being, it, it appears, one person. I think Paul is picking that up and saying, no, Isaiah may be writing greater than he knows. One new man. I will heal him. One new man. But I love how this section begins. Verse 14 of Isaiah 57. Build up, build, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. You see, the barrier, the wall, the dividing wall has been removed. The obstruction has been removed. Isaiah is seeing a day when Christ our peace would come and remove the obstruction. And with that obstruction removed, as I was meditating on this this week, it, it just it disturbed my spirit how easy it is for me to get over my salvation. That prior to 1991, and I was converted in August of 91, I did not have access to God. I didn't. I thought I did. I prayed. But I did not have access to him because I was not united to the one who brings reconciliation. There was a wall. There was an obstruction in my way. It was my sin and God's wrath on my sin. But with that removed through this one who came and died in my place, I now have access to God. And that's how Paul concloses up this, this part of the passage. Verse 18, for through him <coughs> we both, Jew and Gentile, there was a time that the Jews had to go through the sacrificial system and through the priest of the sacrificial system. And the Gentiles didn't even have that. But now, through him, we both, equal standing, have access. Don't you love that word? It's only found in two other places. One is in chapter 3. We'll look at that in a moment. Through him, we have access in one spirit. To the Father. We have access to the Father. So in the Old Testament, access to God was highly restricted. We saw that in our study of, of Exodus. And as I said, there was a barrier in the temple that, that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, but there was an even more significant barrier than that. As significant as that was, 
And that was the barrier between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. There was a veil that was some six inches thick and 30 feet high. And it separated the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple, from the holy place and the rest of the temple. And only one person could go in there, the high priest, and that only once a year, the Day of Atonement. And even then, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin and for his family's sin. It's remarkable, but now, even then, now, and and by the way, what was in that Holy of Holies? You had a cherubim. You had the Ark of the Covenant and the golden cherubim who were established on the Ark symbolically guarding the Holy of Holies from that which is profane. And now it's been destroyed. In other words, this was the greatest, most central alienation. We see, we see a lot of racial unrest today, ethnic unrest. That's not the greatest alienation. The greatest alienation was between God and man. And the cause of this alienation is like the cause of all alienation, sin. But what happened to that veil? Well, Luke tells us and Matthew tells us when Christ finished his work of atonement, Luke 23, 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. No human could have done that because it ripped from the top down. It was some 30 feet high. It was six inches thick and it was cut in two, signaling That now, because of Christ's atoning work, we have access. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We can come into the presence of God. And this signaled that even the division between the common Jew and the high priest who could enter the holy, most holy place has been abolished. And by the way, if you'll notice, look in chapter 3, verse 12, we see that word access again. It's one of the uh, only three places you see it. In Christ, verse 11, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Not only do we have access to the Father, we can come boldly, we can come with confidence into his presence. It's glorious because the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. That is the purpose behind Advent. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Prince of Peace. Unfortunately, even though every Christian, if you are a Christian today, even if you send your way here to church this morning, every Christian right now and forever has peace with God. You cannot destroy that objective peace. It's, it's a It's a legal declaration that's already been secured. Even though every Christian here has peace with God, let's be honest. There are disturbers of peace that eclipse that in our lives every day. It it doesn't destroy that, but it, 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 it it eclipses our capacity to live in light of that, to behold that. So... There are these 
disturbers of peace. It might be something that happens in the world. It might be something that happens in our heart. It might be the world, the flesh, the devil. It may be some kind of difficulty, but it undermines not our objective peace with God. It undermines our subjective peace that we have, the peace of soul that is the fruit of the Spirit, which in turn undermines our peace with each other, our relational peace. And that's why we, this is our calling before anything else, we must renew our minds every day in what Jesus has done for us in securing our objective peace. That's the ground of all other peace. The night of his betrayal, Jesus famously said this to the disciples. I've said these things to you, John chapter 16, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It was all but done. He had overcome the world by his obedience in his life, and he was about to overcome it through his cross and his resurrection. Two points of note there. We will have tribulation. Uh, A synonym for that is trouble. We will have trouble. We will have tribulation in this world. Jesus promised that. And what robs us of our subjective peace and our relational peace is the uncertainty of that, doesn't it? That's what we've seen during COVID. It's been remarkable to me. I, I saw a pastor tweet this last week of a big church. He said, I don't know of a pastor. I do not know of a pastor in America who has not lost people. Not to death, but just lost people in the church because of the way leaders have handled this pandemic. Every church has has been hit by that. Because what happens is when trouble comes, as Jesus promised, uncertainty forms in our hearts. And, and, And sometimes we don't know how to respond to it. But secondly, what Jesus says here is so critical. He says, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And and we saw that in Ephesians 1.22. God has placed all things under his feet. It's already happened. And he appointed him as head over all things for the body, for our benefit, for our good. That verse is so underrated. It is so underrated. Jesus' victory and Jesus' reign is our objective peace. And it's the ground and the reason that we should have peace, subjective peace and relational peace. In fact, when Paul listed the fruit of the Spirit, one of those nine expressions of fruit is peace. He was thinking in terms primarily of relational peace. One of the evidences that I've experienced objective peace with God in Jesus Christ is that I have subjective peace that shows itself in relational peace, peace with others. If we're always, though, finding it hard to be at peace with one another as believers, we need to consider that there's something bigger than our feelings at stake. And what is it? God loved us so much. He loved us so much that he sent his son as our substitute and Savior, to reconcile us to himself, that we might have access to him. And in order to bring horizontal reconciliation. And so here's what it is. Unity 
preaches the gospel. Unity preaches the gospel. And our lack of unity bears false witness. It bears false witness to an accomplishment of the gospel. Jesus Christ has accomplished peace. And our lack of unity in any church, or in a Christian family for that matter, bears false witness to an accomplishment. I want to close real quickly with ways. An application point here. Ways to pursue peace. Peace that we already have in Jesus. It's the already but the not yet. In light of his accomplishment. I think this is important for our church. Give me two minutes. First of all, because Jesus has accomplished reconciliation, it's already happened. Deal with disagreement promptly. And it should only be as public as the offense is. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. That's called wisdom. Anything else is called foolishness. Second, because Jesus has accomplished reconciliation, show restraint, especially with your tongue. Remember, you are his ambassador. Show restraint, especially with your tongue. He's accomplished reconciliation. He's, he is our peace. James 1.19, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Self-expression, by the way, is one of the great, I would say, main idols in our culture. Peacemakers, however, show restraint. Recognizing a problem and having the courage to deal with that problem uh, does not give a believer permission to explode. The fruit of the Spirit should always be evident even in our disagreements. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, or as Paul would say in Ephesians 4, truthing in love. Third, because Jesus was proactive in accomplishing reconciliation, be proactive in pursuing peace. Don't live as an alienated one. You're bearing false witness. It's a high crime for a Christian. Be proactive in accomplishing peace. Peace, pursuing peace. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. Don't cancel him. There's been people cancel churches. That's insane. Pursue peace. And then fourth, because Jesus accomplished reconciliation and in so doing entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, 1 Peter 2, 23, Entrust to God the injustice you've suffered. Entrust it to him. You will be treated unjustly if you follow Christ. It's the way, Christ. 1 Peter 2, 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Indeed, in light of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus' work of reconciliation, reconciliation and peace is our marching orders. There are marching orders as the people of God. We don't have a choice. There's too much at stake. My personal feelings have nothing to do with it. 
the glory of God and the accomplishment of Christ is what I am called to magnify. And that's why Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone. As we saw with Elizabeth Lincoln, what if Jesus' church, every member of his church, took those marching orders seriously? It would be, it would transform a culture. What if they saw on our Facebook and our Twitter feed, agents of peace, reconciliation, people that are more concerned about the gospel than anything else? What if we took it seriously? Well, we don't have to ask the question. Jesus answered it for us. The night before his cross, here's what he said. Father, I pray that they would be one, that the world would know that you have sent me. I pray that they would be one, that the world would know that you have sent me. Let's turn that around just a moment as we close. Father, if they're not one, the world will not believe that you sent me. Let's pray. We come, Father, to the Prince of Peace this morning. And we thank you for the objective peace that every believer has here this morning. And we pray that that objective peace would inform our subjective peace that we long for in our hearts and relational peace that we're called to as ministers of the gospel. We pray for that today in the matchless name of Princess Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.